0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. Except for our monthly bonus episodes where we cover a horror-adjacent movie. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, Ben, how are you doing? Pretty
1: good. Um, It's been...
0: One week since you looked at me.
1: A pretty full day. (laughs) Um, We visited with family this morning and then uh, had a busy afternoon preparing for this episode. Uh, Because this episode was like a lot uh, in a way that some of our more recent episodes have not been.
0: Mm-hmm. That's about how my day's been. Yes, so nothing to add. Right. No notes. Fair enough. Um, what are we watching?
1: Well, Sarah, today we're watching a movie that's kind of like, in my mind, one of the, like the poster children for the horror-adjacent concept. Absolutely. Like Abbott and Costello and this movie are kind of the ones I would think of um, mostly because, like, this movie is constantly, frequently, often cited as a horror movie, which it is not. And uh, it often gets on, like, clickbaity internet lists of, like, like, old movies that are, like, still creepy as fuck or whatever. <laughs> and um, you can take, like, GIFs from this movie and stills from this movie and pictures and it looks pretty Creepy. creepy. And also like the movie has a great deal of fame sort of outside itself, but all of that stuff tells on itself so much in terms of like, Oh, you haven't seen this movie. Mm -hmm. You've not watched this movie because this is not a horror movie, but it is part of a wider tradition that we have talked about and covered way back at the start of the show. So this is sort of the sequel to our, phantom of the opera episode mm-hmm. this is 1928's the man who laughs directed by paul lenny
0: this film was picked by our patrons over at patreon.com scream podcast um we do these bonus episodes because we've hit that goal level on patreon so if you know someone who is a patron of the night Give them a high five or a thumbs up emoticon because we do this because of them. So thank you, everyone who is a patron. Thank you, everyone who voted on the poll to choose this movie. It, it was a very clear winner that it was The Man Who Laughs, yeah. which is very funny to me because there was another Paul Lenny movie, 1924's Waxworks.
1: Yeah, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about today. Okay. But I'm not surprised that Man Who Laughs won the poll because, as I said, like,
0: I think it's listed on the Patreon goal As the example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So,
0: Sarah, have you ever seen this movie? I have not. Um, I've seen the many stills and GIFs. My first introduction to knowing about the existence of this movie was Meeting You.
1: That makes sense.
0: Uh, Because I think you were on a forum and your name was like, the name of this main character, Gwynplaine, and or your user icon was Gwynplaine, Yeah. Played by Conrad Veidt.
1: Yeah. When I was younger, like late teens, early twenties, like either, um, I would use like Gwynplaine as a internet avatar, or, um, there's also like a picture of Conrad Veidt that I would use as like an avatar on forums a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I knew well of this movie, but I came to know about this movie because of like, the most well-known piece of trivia about this movie which we can talk about later and that well-known piece of trivia is sort of how I was introduced to this movie which I think is also how most people Mm -hmm. find out that this movie exists but I first saw this movie probably in my teens when I like rented it from you know the local video rental place on DVD it would have had to have been after I turned 13 um Mm -hmm. So yeah, I had I had seen this movie. It's been a while since I have seen it all the way through. We don't own it. Uh, really? I is,
0: just assumed we did.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a surprise, right? Yeah. Um,
0: well, because also, as you talked about in the last horror adjacent movie when we were talking about M, you are a big silent film buff. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to just being a film buff, as <laughs> demonstrated by this podcast, but you're also really big into. German silent film. Yes. And while this is an American movie, Paul Lenny comes from Germany.
1: Yes, as does Conrad Veit. There's a lot of Germanic connections here. And yeah, this is one of those like key silent movies that you still hear a lot about. Um, but yeah, I just never was able to track down a copy of this to like own. The first time I saw this, I had a very interesting experience because of the fact that this movie gets presented as if it's a horror movie Mm -hmm. by like websites and like advertising and like all kinds of things like it's just commonly presented uh as a horror movie uh in that same way that like a lot of german expressionist films just Mm -hmm. get automatically presented as horror movies even if they're not so you know knowing the trivia point about this movie that I did and that being my introduction and thinking it was going to be a horror movie. I went into the movie with like one expectation and got a very different movie than I thought I was going to get. And because of that, like the first time I saw this, I don't think my take on it was very positive because of that. That's fair. Yeah. Um, so it took me a while to like warm up to this movie and I'm really excited to go back and watch it today with you. To kind of begin the story of this movie, we kind of have to rewind time quite a bit Mm -hmm. all the way back to like the early days of the show and start with another film that we haven't covered that is also a horror adjacent film that was actually one of the other options on the poll this month, which is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So in 1923, Lon Chaney had starred as Quasimodo in universal pictures adaptation of victor hugo's novel the hunchback of notre dame the story was reframed largely as a tragic love story and hunchback was the first of universal's super jewels so back in those days as longtime listeners will remember universal would like categorize their films based on like budget and prestige um, and they would have these categories like on the posters A small number of the films released every year were jewels, which were like A-pictures with big stars and big budgets. But most of Universal's releases were Blue Ribbon and Red Feather releases, medium to low-budget movies. Hunchback was a super jewel, which Universal would then produce one of a year, Mm -hmm. starting with Hunchback. Um, And it was produced at a then-staggering cost of $1.25 million um, of the studio's own money as was owner Carl Emley's policy at the time, was for Universal not to borrow money. That film was directed by Wallace Worsley and was largely designed as a showcase for Lon Chaney Sr. um, as both an actor and a master of makeup. Chaney was famous as the Man of a Thousand Faces, and the key thing to remember about that is that in the early days of film, actors were expected to do their own makeup because that was how things had worked in theater. Mm -hmm. Um, It just so happened that Chaney was a genius at it. And so his makeup could be a lot more than just like a fake mustache and some eyeshadow. Um, And he would totally transform himself. So he had this extremely elaborate makeup as Quasimodo. And that's one of the reasons why the Hunchback of Notre Dame is sort of remembered as like a silent movie monster because of Chaney's, extremely elaborate and probably somewhat painful makeup in the role. Chaney was something of a masochist, in my opinion. (laughs) Anyways, this gamble paid off because Hunchback of Notre Dame was a huge hit, grossing $3.5 million. Universal immediately wanted a follow-up project, uh, one that would hopefully copy as much of Hunchback's formula as possible. So that would be a period setting, a literary adaptation from a French author with (laughs) Gothic elements, and a disfigured lead character for Lon Chaney to play in a tragic love triangle with a beautiful woman and like some normal guy probably played by Norman Carey. The first pick for the follow-up from both Chaney and Carl Emley was Gaston LaRue's novel Phantom of the Opera but executives at Universal were sort of unsure about whether Phantom could be made into like a satisfying movie. There was a lot of like questions and concerns about its structure as a story about its week ending, mm. um, all kinds of concerns about like, is this a novel that can be turned into a movie properly? People just didn't get it. Um, and because of those concerns, um, Lemley started looking for like an alternate if phantom didn't turn out. And that was Victor Hugo's novel, the man who laughs because well, it had all of those requisite elements I just mentioned, plus also being the same author mm-hmm. as Hunchback of Notre Dame. So, Victor Hugo,
0: kind of a big deal? Just a little bit. Just yeah. a little bit. <laughs> About as big of a deal as uh, Notre Dame itself. Right. You know, Hugo was born on February 26, 1802 and was the youngest of three boys. Uh, His father, Joseph, was in the Napoleonic army, and so they would move across France to wherever his next post was, Uh, while his mother, Sophie, was a devout Catholic who uh, also remained supportive of the aristocracy.
1: Well, that's a little dangerous
0: yes the it,
1: aristocracy part not the catholicism part <laughs> well depending on exactly what month it is in the revolution the catholicism part might have been in or out of fashion but it's napoleonic times so
0: yeah <laughs> now sophie was getting tired of moving around france so she ended up separating from victor's father when victor was about one years old and so they started living in paris um, his parents would go back and forth, uh, being separated, being not, having their own affairs. And when his father went to Spain in 1808, Victor, at six years old, moved with his family to Paris. Living nearby was his mother's boyfriend, Victor Fanon de la Horry, um, who was a uh, general in the Napoleonic army. And he became kind of like a mentor to Victor and his brothers. De la Horry would later be arrested and executed for conspiring against Napoleon. So you can kind of see what he and Sophie bonded over. Sure. <laughs> um, and that happened in 1812. And that was kind of a tumultuous time for Victor because... And a
1: lot of the rest of the world.
0: <laughs> Bad year. I'm, I'm hyper-focusing here, though, um, because, you know, his mentor is rounded up and executed He and his brothers are sent to live in a boarding school and Sophie completely separates from their father and she's like, I'm done. While attending the boarding school, I see Louis-le-Grand, the louis the grand school. Mm. um, Victor found his passion for writing and indeed his inability to not be writing. (laughs) Um,
1: That explains his um, lack of brevity.
0: And Absolutely <laughs> um, and he was greatly inspired by a French literary figure named Francois Rene, the Vicomte de Chateaubriand, who is a romantic writer and historian as well as a politician, a very big guy in French literary circles um, and Victor was so inspired and when he was 14 he declared in his diary, "I will be Chateaubriand or nothing." mm. So the following year, when Victor's 15, he submitted his first poem to the French Academy. The French Academy uh, is like an organization that prioritizes like French culture, regulates the French language, that sort of thing. And they gave him an honorable mention for this poem. uh, And they refused to believe he was only 15. Hmm. After his mother died in 1821, Victor married his childhood sweetheart, Adele Foucher, and devoted himself to writing full-time. So his very first novel came out in 1823. He would have been 21 years old, and it is titled Han de de Lund, uh, Han from Iceland. Okay. Um, His second novel is uh, three years later, titled *Rug Jargol, which is a person's name. And the biggest splash of his early works came in 1829 with um, his story, Le Dernier Condame, um The Last Day of a Condemned Man, mm. which is um, a fictional story, but is often tied to his experience of his mentor being taken and executed because it's uh, very strongly in favor of uh, abolishing the death penalty.
1: Mm. Got to wait till 1977 for that, Hugo.
0: <laughs> he can't wait that long, Ben. So he's already making big splashes here, and he solidified his place among the French Romantic movement um, with his plays Cromwell in 1827 and Hanani in 1830. So his next notable work, and also key with Romanticism, is 1831's Notre Dame de Paris, he was only 29 years old.
1: Wow. (laughs) I've always thought that Notre Dame de Paris was like the work of like an older man because it's so grumpy.
0: He definitely wrote it as like, you know, wanting to talk about the plight of the poor, but a big motivating factor was wanting to be like, guys, we have this huge building that is beautiful. Let's fucking take care of it. Mm Mm-hmm. After Notre Dame, um, he began planning for his novel Les Misérables*, but he would not publish it until like 30 years later. Oh, wow. During this period of time, um, after Notre Dame, um, he did publish... A little bit here and there but he really focused on expanding his socially conscious mind to politics this kind of started when he himself was elected to the french academy in 1841 and that became a huge credibility boost to his public image as a man of france and he used that to kind of build up into being elected into the national assembly of the second republic in 1848 he mm. would be 46 years old and really starting his career in politics. Now, when he starts his career in politics, his writing focuses more on nonfiction, writing pamphlets, uh, speeches, that sort of thing. So a lot of his creative outlet came through drawing illustrations, and his illustrations are absolutely beautiful, incredibly detailed. Um, I guess... He would only show it to family and friends because he didn't want his illustrations to take any focus away from his writings. Okay. Um, But he very well could have been an artist instead of a a writer.
1: Don't look at these. They're too good. (laughs) Think of (laughs) me as a writer.
0: They really are too good. It's ridiculous. Um, Like, you're a too talented guy. When he was elected, he was part of the Conservative Party. Hmm. Um, The following year, he had a speech calling for the end to misery and poverty, uh, which meant having to break with his conservative party membership. Mm. During these few years in politics, he also advocated for universal suffrage, free education for children, and of course, the abolishment of the death penalty. In 1851, Napoleon III seized power, and Victor criticized this. He saw this as like a dictator coming to power. So he was like very vocal about being critical of this and had a self-imposed exile until 1870. Where did
1: he live in that period?
0: So he would eventually settle in, I believe, um, either Sweden or Switzerland, I forget. Oh, sure. But he he would travel along to many different like places. Like he went to the Canary Islands, for example, with his family, yeah. As an example of one of the pamphlets... Hugo published about Napoleon um, the year after he came to power. uh, This pamphlet is titled Napoleon Le Petit. (laughs) (laughs) So during exile, he continued writing critiques of um, Napoleon, uh, as well as getting back into writing fiction. And he brought in his calls for social reform into his fiction more explicitly. Mm -hmm. In 1862, he would publish... Les Miserables. Um, and then in 1869, he would publish L'Homme rit, which is The Man Who Laughs.
1: So, sorry, so this, he wrote this novel like a year or two after Les Miserables? Seven. Seven, okay. I I guess I always thought that like, just like the movie, that like, this novel would have been like a follow-up to Notre Dame de Paris, because it's like, got so many like similar elements. But I do sometimes forget that like, Hugo's novel doesn't really care about like quasimodo and the love story like it's it's really just about the building mm-hmm. um and as you've pointed out like all the socially conscious stuff from the adaptations is more like later hugo les miserables hugo
0: exactly um he would write many other plays uh short stories whatever but those are the the two big things and hmm. the two novels he did during this time hmm. so napoleon the said in like the 1850s People can come back. They don't need to be exiled from France. They can come back. Uh, Victor said no Hmm. and would come back in 1870 um, when Napoleon would no longer be around. And he made it back to Paris just in time for the Paris Commune.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Which we talked about in our Phantom of the Opera episode, which if you want to hear more about, it's episode 14. But in short, it was like a coup, basically. Um, a revolutionary government, Victor was like, listen, both sides are being real dicks and like causing a lot of harm to people. But I do support the National Assembly. (laughs) (laughs) Once the Paris Commune kind of settled down, the National Assembly is back. He did run for office again um, in 1872, though he was not reelected. However, uh despite that, he continued to be politically involved and active, either as an orator, speaking to the National Assembly, as well as in his own writing. He was very much a believer in like the humanistic progress of mankind. Hmm. Now, as much as his calls for social reform were pushing boundaries uh of his like society, he was in line with his contemporaries about uh believing that colonialism was good and um, and would be bringing civilization into native and indigenous populations. Right.
1: Because like, if at the time you were a firm believer in the idea of like the forward progress of mankind, what that would contextually mean in the 19th century was a belief that like history moves forward towards modernism and progressivism. And therefore anything that moves a society in that direction is good, ergo, Colonialism, good.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, he was ardently anti-slavery, um, even going so far to like write to the United States to be like, you know, you say you're for liberty, but you have slaves. Mm. Um, you cannot stand for liberty and also enslave people. Um, also very interesting to me is uh, he was very pro-copyright and pro-rights of the artist. Yeah. But that when you die, it goes to the public domain. It goes to the people. Hmm. Cause he saw it as like you write the thing, but someone reading it also helps create through their imagination. Hmm. And once one of you dies, the rights would go fully to the other person. Hmm. So I, the author die, it goes to the public, Hmm. which is like really forward thinking, uh, for things just putting it out there. That's, that's my academic English brain Hmm. getting peaked. Um, As he reached age 80, he was given tributes across France, streets named after him, um, given like presents from the leaders of the country. When he died in 1885 of pneumonia, there was national mourning. He had a state funeral and he was laid in a crypt alongside Alexandre Dumas and Emile Zola. Sure. So Long Quiri... The Man Who Laughs cast your mind back to a 67-year-old Hugo. Mm. He's still an exile and he can come back anytime. Right. You know, he's just being um a little stubborn about it. The novel has the subtitle By the Order of the King mm-hmm. as well, which I think is important to note here. We are set in 17th-century England and we follow a young boy named Gwynplaine as he rescues a young girl in a snowstorm, they seek shelter with the carnival vendor named Ursus and his pet wolf homo. <laughs> it's a Latin pun on like the name of like a wolf. Yeah, there's
1: a there's a Latin phrase that basically means man is a wolf to men. And so the word homo is is man in Latin.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> but I'm a child, you see. Right. So Gwynplaine has a mouth that has been mutilated into a grin, and so he joins the carnival in the the freak sideshow part. He grows up with Ursus and the young girl, whose name is Dia. Um, Dia happens to be blind, and so, of course, Dia and Gwynplaine fall in love. Meanwhile, there is a duchess, Josiana, who is bored. And so her, um, fiance, uh, she has been engaged to this guy since birth. He's like, why don't you go see the, like the, the big show, the big carnival and like this new show they have featuring this guy named Gwynplaine? Like you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll love it. So she goes and Josiana and Gwynplaine's eyes lock and they become very interested in each other. Now, there's a member of the court who arranges for Josiana and Gwynplaine to meet. This court member wants to, like, humiliate Josiana. Um, but before Gwynplaine can get there, he gets sent to the dungeon, where um, he happens to meet this man who's undergoing torture. This man recognizes Gwynplaine, and he says, my name is Dr. Hardquinnon. <laughs> More like hard to pronounce. <laughs> Hardquinon." Um, And he identifies Gwynplaine as a child that the doctor arranged to be mutilated and kidnapped.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) You see, Gwynplaine is actually the son of um, a lord in the court. And when his father got chased out of court, the tyrannical King James II uh, arranged for the lord's son, named Fermain, to disappear so this doctor uh, had Fermain taken by kidnappers who were known to mutilate children, to sell them either into, you know, sideshows or to have them beg on the streets. And these child kidnappers, traffickers, named Fermain Gwynplaine.
1: I want to stop for a moment here. Okay. Because it's important to note. So these, like, child kidnapper mutilator seller people... Hugo calls them comprachicos, chicos and they're like Spanish and they're like this known group that molds children the way the Chinese mold trees is how it's described in the book. Uh, so like bonsai, but with people. Um, so like, for example, with Gwynplaine, like the way his, his smile has been mutilated, or whatever is the idea is like that they, take you for a long time and they might like put your body in a certain position and just keep it like that for long enough that like it just stays like that forever now hugo describes them as like giving people bad spines so that they'll turn out as like dwarfs and like all kinds of stuff hugo presents this as like entirely real like that this is a real group that really exists and does this thing and they are not real they are a made-up thing uh, there's no such thing. Hugo invented the word "comprachico," like it does not exist outside this novel. But like there were at the time that he wrote it, like urban legends about this, basically. Sure. So this is sort of like the like QAnon PizzaGate
0: of oh my day, God. basically. <laughs> that like Hugo's
1: invoking to like torture this
0: kid. <laughs> wow. Okay. I I didn't know that. So, anyways. Four-year-old Fermain is sold to these comprachicos and named Gwynplaine. When this doctor shares his story and it comes to light that the Lord's son, Fermain, is still alive, um, he actually ends up getting to claim inheritance. Josiana, meanwhile, doesn't know any of this. She conspires to get Gwynplaine out of the dungeon because she wants to seduce him. Just as she's about to, someone bursts in and is like, it's for Maine. He actually is the one who you're supposed to be engaged to, Josiana. And she's like, oh, well, I'll marry him. But now I don't want to fuck him. <laughs> and so it's not she, exciting anymore. Yeah, she rejects him as soon as they are actually the same class.
1: Right. As long as he's not taboo. Mm-hmm. You are actually this thing. Turns out you had secret parents is like a very victor hugo <laughs> plot Very twist
0: romantic
1: yeah gothic
0: romantic so Gwynplaine joins the upper class but he's disgusted at their privilege and hypocrisy and he actually calls them out on it in a speech to the court and it's queen anne's court uh but he gets laughed out because he's delivering this like scathing like the scathing critique with this big smile
1: mm-hmm
0: so he announces his title and all of his like inheritance, and goes back to try to find Ursus and Dea, um, who have both been deported from England because they had a wolf here. Yeah, um, you can't have
1: wolves in England. That's just not cool.
0: Uh, ap- apparently, as soon as Gwynplaine had like vanished without a trace, Dea had become very ill because they were in love.
1: And this is what makes you ill in the
0: 1600s. Absolutely, nothing else. Once Gwynplaine returns, she is so incredibly happy that she dies from the strain of the emotion. Ursus faints at all of this because he's like, you're back, she's dead, what the fuck? And he faints. So Gwynplaine, seeing that the love of his life is dead and presuming that his mentor is dead, throws himself overboard into the sea as they cross the channel. The end.
1: This is such a Victor Hugo novel.
0: Yes, it is.
1: Uh, If you're not familiar, the ending of Notre Dame de Paris is also hecka depressing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So pretty clear here is the critique of the ruling class that is bored with privilege, but then weaponizes that privilege for their own amusement with no regard for people's lives. Um, And one thing that I wanted to call out in Gwynplaine's speech to the court is he says that i embody humanity as its masters have made it Mm. because of this like grotesque smile Mm. that he's been forced to wear so the novel came out in 1869 contemporary reviews were like this is good but it's not les mis it's not notre dame but yeah it's good um and it's only really after Hugo's passing that people have started going like Now, actually, I think this might be one of his best works. Hmm. So all of the adaptations of The Man Who Laughs uh, come in the 20th century. Got it. The first is a French silent film in 1909, which is lost, unfortunately. Then there was a 1921 German silent film called Das Grimmsed Geschicht. Uh, starring Franz Hobling and directed by Julius Hutzka. There was a 1921 Broadway play titled Claire de Lune, um, and this starred John Barrymore as Gwynplaine and his sister Ethel as Queen Anne. Hmm. Then we get this 1928 American film adaptation by Paul Lenny. After this, we, there's a 1932 French film adaptation of the Claire de Lune play. Hmm. Directed by Henri Diamond Belger. Um, there's a 1950 comic book adaptation of the 1928 film, a 1966 Italian French co production, which resituates the time period to be um, about the Borgias being uh. awful people. Hmm. And there are many others after this, but most recently are some musical adaptations.
1: Okay. I can totally see, like, people targeting this to be a musical when like Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera are hit
0: musicals. Totally. The thing is, though, is um, with the case of like Les Mis and even pieces from Notre Dame de Paris, people were so inspired by Hugo's works that they started putting music to those storylines and those characters in his lifetime.
1: Did you see that um, 2012 live action French version?
0: Yes, I didn't mention it because I was like, there's a lot of adaptations of this.
1: It very much strikes me as a like, so The Dark Knight was a big hit. Yeah. Adaptation.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, (laughs) I mean, we're getting to the trivia point. Yes. Uh, We've been kind of talking around it.
1: Yes. The other thing about like The Man Who Laughs and its adaptations in the 20th century is, as you say, like Notre Dame de Paris was starting to be adapted like while the book was being written practically, like there were adaptations of Les Mis right away. And as we see with other novels, like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or Frankenstein or Dracula, the adaptations create this like lineage of plot changes, basically mm-hmm. where things in Hugo's novel that are like, maybe like a little much get like smoothed out over time. Right. Um, you know, the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame (laughs) owes a lot to the 1939 movie version Mm -hmm. of Hunchback of Notre Dame, which, you know, owes a lot to the 1923 version, which is inspired. So like each of these adaptations builds on the one before to kind of iron out some of the weirdness in the source material. Man Who Laughs doesn't have that lineage. So a lot of the weirdness remains. Mm -hmm. I always heard that the novel was not well received in England, primarily because the novel sort of makes it obvious that Victor Hugo doesn't know shit about England. All you need to do is look at like the character names. So universal was looking at man who laughs, but ultimately decided to go with Phantom of the Opera. The thing that sort of saved Phantom of the Opera at first was director Rupert Julian, who had been brought in to um, finish Joseph von Stroheim's merry-go-round after that movie went, over budget and julian came in and like clamped down and got it done under time and under budget and they were like oh okay cool we'll give you phantom then because there was this big concern that phantom was gonna run over budget (laughs) so the thing is (laughs) um phantom was a nightmare um had a huge troubled production which as sarah mentioned earlier you can learn more about in episode 14 it was an extremely expensive production Um, It ended up running over budget, costing $1.5 million, and it only made $2 million when it was originally released in 1925. That film was then re-released several times with various revisions made each time, you know, different endings, different tones. Um, We go into all of that in the episode. But present in all of these versions was Lon Chaney in his memorable makeup, as eric the phantom uh, which was you know a key element in the movie now while phantom of the opera had been an expensive nightmare of a movie it did make a big impact on audiences who you know reacted in shock and horror to cheney's appearance you know the famous stories of people fainting in the theaters and whatnot so because of that it was decided to do like a third project this time returning to the man who laughs so like okay we're gonna do man who laughs as the phantom follow-up however in 1925 cheney signed an exclusive contract with mgm to go appear in movies directed by todd browning and so without lon cheney it seemed that any hopes of producing the man who laughs were sort of pointless like you don't have the man of a thousand faces so what are you gonna do yeah what made the difference was that director Paul Lenny's 1924 film Waxworks was released in the United States. Waxworks is a German Expressionist anthology film written by Henrik Galeen, who wrote Nosferatu. The film starred Emil Jannings as Harun al-Rashid in an Arabian Nights segment, Conrad Veidt as Ivan the Terrible in an historical segment, and Werner Krauss as Jack the Ripper in a very short horror segment at the end. Like, the Harun al-Rashid bit is 40 minutes, the Ivan the Terrible bit is 40 minutes, the Jack the Ripper bit is six minutes.
0: Six minutes. Yeah, so
1: six minutes out of an 86-minute runtime does not a horror movie make. Waxworks is not a horror movie. But it is German Expressionist. Now, Paul Lenny was born in Stuttgart in the German Empire in 1885 to a Jewish family. He was an avant-garde painter, and he studied at the Berlin Academy of Fine Arts before becoming a theatrical set designer. From theater, he progressed to film in 1913 as a set designer and art director. He began directing his own films in 1917, of which Waxworks was the 10th. Now, Karl Emley was himself a German expat, and he was highly impressed with Waxworks, and brought both Paul Lenny and Conrad Veidt over to Hollywood to do work for Universal. Lenny's first film for Universal was 1927's The Cat and the Canary. Although it is an old dark house movie in the mold of the bat, The Cat and the Canary saw Lenny bring the visual style of German expressionism to the American proto-horror film, and we discussed this in episode 19. And this visual style would be the one that Universal would then use in its earliest true horror films, Dracula and Frankenstein and so on. Films that were so influential on the genre that for a decade or more, Universal's style basically just dictated what horror movies looked like. Conrad Veit was born in Berlin in 1893. He had originally wished to be a surgeon, but he did not do well enough in school. And so instead he decided to become an actor to the great disappointment of his father. (laughs) At age 19, he began loitering outside Berlin theaters after performances, hoping to be mistaken for an actor. (laughs) Uh, He eventually got acting lessons and successfully auditioned for Max Reinhardt's company in 1913, playing minor roles. Then World War I broke out. Veit served on the Eastern Front in the Battle of Warsaw. He contracted jaundice and pneumonia, and after recovering in an army hospital, he was judged unfit for duty and sent back home. In 1916, Vite began acting on stage again, slowly attracting positive critical buzz. He debuted on film in 1917, becoming extremely prolific, although many of his early films are lost or only partially extant. His notable German films of the silent era include Different from the Others in 1919, mm-hmm. the first film to depict homosexuality sympathetically, Eerie Tales in 1919, which we covered in episode four.
0: Oh my God, that's so long ago.
1: The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari in 1920, which we covered in episode five. <laughs> the Head of Giannis* in 1920, which is a lost film. The Hands of Orlac in 1924, covered in episode 12. Waxworks in 1924, and The Student of Prague in 1926, which we covered in episode 18. Arriving in Hollywood with his second wife, Anna Radka, and his daughter, Viola, Veit appeared in two American films in 1927 before working with Lenny again on The Man Who Laughs. Now, this was another Super Jewel production. So, The Man Who Laughs was given a budget of $1 million. Um, Less than Hunchback and Phantom cost, but still like a huge amount in those days. Yes. With Lon Chaney out of the picture, Universal needed a makeup man. So they hired former actor turned makeup artist Jack Pierce to create Gwynplaine's Rictus Grin. Conrad Veidt was fitted with a set of dentures that had metal hooks to pull back the corners of his mouth. So while these dentures were in, Veidt was actually unable to speak.
0: Good thing it's a silent film, I guess. Exactly.
1: Playing the good girl love interest in the movie would be Mary Philbin. She had been under contract with Universal since she was 19 years old in 1921. In 1923, she starred in Eric von Stroheim's Merry-Go-Round opposite Norman Carey, which would lead to her being cast in the lead role of Christine Daae in Phantom of the Opera. So The Man Who Laughs is, you know, obviously the follow-up project, placing her in the similar role of Dia. The movie's bad girl, the duchess Josiana, is played by Russian actress Olga Baklanova. She was always cagey about her age, so sources place her birth variously between 1883 and 1900, with a date of 1893 being supported by scholarship. She studied drama and theater and began acting on stage in 1912. She appeared in around 17 Russian films starting in 1914. In 1925, the Moscow Art Theater uh, put on a worldwide tour. And when the company left New York, Baklanova just sort of stayed behind. She missed the boat. Right. Purposefully. With her blonde hair and statuesque looks, uh, she was able to win herself roles in American silent films. Often asking to be credited solely as Baklanova in imitation of fellow acclaimed Russian immigrant actress Alla Natsumova. The Man Who Laughs is one of Baklanova's best-remembered films, though 1928's The Docks of New York was probably her most successful in contemporary times. Her Russian accent did not play well in the sound era, and her career declined, leading to her second most notable role as the villainous Cleopatra in Todd Browning's Freaks in 1932, which we covered in episode 29. Mm -hmm. So she gets turned into the duck lady at the end. Yeah. She continued to appear in film and on stage until her retirement in 1955. And she passed away in Switzerland in 1974. The Man Who Laughs was originally produced as a silent film with intertitles and music, which would be, you know, provided live at the theater. But on October 6th, 1927, The Jazz Singer was released and sound film was the new buzz. So Universal post-converted The Man Who Laughs into a partial sound film using Western Electric's movie tone, movie on film system. So the film was given sound effects and a musical score, um, but with dialogue still being provided by the intertitles. Sure. Uh, The musical score was built around a song called When Love Comes Stealing, which was composed by Erno Rappi with lyrics by Walter Hirsch and Lou Pollock. The single was not the success that Universal would have liked. The Man Who Laughs premiered on April 27, 1928 in New York in its silent version before receiving general release in the United States in the partial sound version on November 4th, 1928. The contemporary critical reaction was mixed with critics finding issue with the film's gruesome subject matter and with the Germanic production design, which was heavily expressionism flavored. Mm -hmm. um, In critics' minds, that sort of clashed with the 17th century England setting.
0: Sure. So when they saw Caligari, they just thought Germany looks like that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, critics
1: felt that it just wasn't very true to what England in the 17th century was like, Okay, which to be fair was also a criticism leveled at the novel. So (laughs) modern critics, however, regard The Man Who Laughs as a late period expressionist classic, highly influential, and with particular praise given to Veidt's performance and Lenny's direction. It's sometimes considered to be Lenny's masterpiece. It received its first DVD release from Kino in 2003, and there was a 4K restoration released on Blu-ray in 2019 by Flickr Alley. The film has a long legacy. Jack Pierce would remain Universal's makeup man until a corporate shakeup in 1946, creating the original makeup designs for the classic Universal monsters. Charlie Hall's expressionist, gothic, mixed-aesthetic For this film would also be iterated on in his work on the later Universal Horror Pictures. Possibly the most famous bit of trivia about this movie is that Conrad Veidt's appearance in this film inspired the creation of the Joker in Batman No. 1 in 1940 by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson. All three of these men were major movie buffs and the silent films of their youths provided a lot of inspiration in their comic book stories. Joker is not the only element of Batman that you can trace to an old movie that they ripped off.
0: Clayface and Lon Chaney.
1: Right. Or Batman in general and Zorro as popularized by Douglas Fairbanks. Absolutely. Um, But definitely like... When you look at how Joker was originally drawn in his first appearances, the way that Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson first drew him, it's very clear that it's Conrad Veidt as Gwynplaine, um, taking like very direct inspiration from his appearance in this film. But the character is totally different. As we've learned from Sarah's plot synopsis, like Gwynplaine is a sympathetic hero. Um not anything. He doesn't go
0: around trying to pull pranks that kill you. Right.
1: <laughs> Nothing like the Joker, uh, who in his earliest appearances was very much a psychopath serial killer. So, you know, coming back to what I was saying at the start of the episode, like this is part of, I think, the cycle of disappointment that people experience when they watch this movie because they're expecting the character of Gwynplaine to be a villain or a mm-hmm. monster in the vein of Quasimodo or Eric. Um, since the Quasimodo in Lon Chaney's version of Hunchback is slightly more in line with the novel's Quasimodo, who's very much a um, misanthrope. Anyways, because of this association, plays on the title, The Man Who Laughs, or the name Gwynplaine, are very common in like modern Joker stories because the writers are like, hee hee, I know that trivia. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know that trivia too. Paul Lenny's next film would be The Last Warning, a backstage mystery story that was meant to capitalize on the success of The Cat and the Canary. That film debuted on Christmas Day, 1928, but Lenny would never direct a follow-up to The Man Who Laughs, as he died September 2nd, 1929, of sepsis from an untreated tooth infection, age 44.
0: Oh, I remember this. Oh, fuck. What, What a way to go, man. Fuck me. Teeth stuff really freaked me out man i don't know
1: the follow-up to the man who laughs was made however with 1929's the last performance directed by paul fajos made in both a silent and sound version simultaneously Um, only the silent version has survived and this dark drama stars vite as a sinister stage magician who's in love with a younger woman played by mary philbin very much kind of a like Svengali and Trilby yeah. kind of vibe. That movie received a mixed reception, and after dubbing her own voice in the partial sound re-release of *Phantom of the Opera*, Philbin retired from acting and became something of a recluse. Um, she basically didn't leave her house until she was invited to the premiere of Andrew Lloyd Webber's *Phantom of the Opera* musical in the late '80s, um, and then she passed away at age 90 in 1993. Weitz. Difficulties with English at this time led him to abandon Hollywood in the sound era and return to Germany. However, his stay was short-lived. His marriage to his third wife, Ilona Prager, uh, became problematic when the Nazis took power due to his wife's Jewish heritage. Veit despised Nazis, and so the two escaped to Britain, where Veit finally learned English and began appearing in British films like The Thief of Baghdad, where he plays like the Grand Vizier, like Jafar. In 1941, he returned to Hollywood after donating his life savings to the British war effort, going to Hollywood specifically to play Nazis in movies as like total bastards in order to sway public opinion in the U.S. in favor of joining the war with Britain, which he did most memorably in his role as Major Strasser in Casablanca.
0: I really like Fight, um, both as an actor and what I get from him as a person.
1: He had a inherited heart condition uh, from his mother, and that led to his death of heart failure in 1943 so yeah that's the history of this movie i'm really excited to watch it with you
0: same yeah
1: and right now streaming options for it are pretty limited um it was on the criterion channel for a while as part of like a silent movie package that they had um but that isn't happening anymore And so at the moment, I don't really know off the top of my head places where you can stream it other than um, it's available on a service called Flixfling. Um, That
0: sounds a little, uh, you know, check check your computer for viruses.
1: (laughs) But ultimately, um, the movie is going to be in the public domain as of 2024. Oh, so, you know. In a few more years, it'll be everywhere, Um, but it's not in the public domain just yet.
0: Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Man Who Laughs from 1928, directed by Paul Lenny. See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Man Who Laughs, directed by Paul Lenny from 1928. Sarah, what did you think? It was your first time with this movie.
0: Yeah, I I think I had to sit with this one for a little bit to really appreciate parts of it Mm. because it follows a lot of the same plot beats as Hunchback, and at first I felt a little disappointed by Paul Lenny, because I'm like, when I think of Paul Lenny, I think of the German expressionism that we saw in Cat and the Canary. Right. Um, but as I kind of sat with this and started thinking about things, I realized like, now he's still doing the things, it's just in a different and arguably more subtle way. Because mm-hmm. this isn't horror. Yeah. so why would he use the same visual stylings as he does in a horror movie in a not horror movie you right know? um so i i like that i had the chance to kind of sit with it to really start to appreciate that part
1: yeah there's some very striking visuals yes. in this movie for sure
0: what about you this is um like i presume like your third or fourth time seeing this
1: probably third okay yeah um Mostly, I was really surprised by how well I remembered Gwynplaine's theme from the score. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, "Oh yeah, I know this music." So yeah, that was neat. And then like, I didn't really remember how this movie ended.
0: <laughs> sure.
1: So I was like, "Okay, cool, cool, cool," <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, it was a good time.
0: Cool. Uh, well, let me give the plot synopsis for our listeners. Um, By and large, it appears to follow the novel's plot pretty closely. There are some minor changes, though. So we go in, like, chronological order of events, rather than the novel's flashback halfway through situation.
1: Yeah, you lose that kind of Victor Hugo, like, surprise, your dad was a, a nobleman kind of, like, thing.
0: Yeah. We open with King James and his jester, (laughs) Sparkle
1: <laughs> Definitely a real English name.
0: Absolutely. Um, mocking a Lord Clencharlie. Also a very real English name. It um, sounds
1: like it's trying to maybe be like a Scots.
0: Because clan is in
1: Clencharly. there.
0: Charlie But like it's... No. It's, <laughs> yeah, not how no. things work. No. Anyways, Lord Clencharlie is put into the Iron Maiden after being mocked that uh, his son uh, was given to compachicos and specifically a compachico surgeon next we cut to uh, a decree that all compachicos are exiled out of england uh gtfo even though you did me that favor says king james yeah um
1: no one will ever know
0: <laughs> um but we see that Gwynplaine, as a child is left behind and we are on the like Snowy cliffs of the frozen Dover.
1: Uh, it's Cornwall. They're in Cornwall, but yes, A
0: frozen Cornwall.
1: Yes, it's 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 like the fucking Arctic up in here.
0: So Gwynplaine, um, the young child, uh, wanders the frozen wasteland. He ends up finding baby Dia, and they take refuge with Ursus and his pet wolf Homo. As adults, we see that Gwynplaine and Dia are in love um, and they have a traveling show where Gwynplaine is known as the, the man who laughs. That's the name of the movie. Um, and he's like a famous clown. And, you know, Dia is like, hey, when are we get married, would love to be married to you. And Gwynplaine's like, but you're blind, so you don't know what you're signing up for because you can't see how horribly ugly I am. And he actually refuses to even let her touch his face. As they are doing one of those shows, we see that the Chico surgeon uh, that we know as Dr. Hardquanon...
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, Dr- a definitely real name.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> recognizes Gwynplaine and then tries to use the fact that Gwynplaine's still around and in England as a means to blackmail a Duchess Josiana. And the reason why he chooses to blackmail Josiana is because she is enjoying the wealth and privilege of the Clan Charlie estate, even though she has no real uh, claim to it. Um, However, his letter is intercepted by our old friend Barkilphedro, Fedro, um, who's still around, no longer a jester. Now he's a respectable crony. And he takes the letter to Queen Anne. Now, Josiana is engaged to a Lord Deary Moore.
1: Also a definitely real
0: name (laughs) in england as as well um and to kind of summarize their personalities and relationship she's a slut and he's an idiot
1: yes yeah Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) and josiana because uh she doesn't show a lot of respect to the queen has gotten on her bad side to use
1: like 1920s parlance she's a vamp
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. so josiana is at the fair and sees Gwynplaine's performance, and while everyone in the audience laughs and mocks him, uh, she like doesn't laugh and just stares. And this catches Gwynplaine's eye when he is on stage. So that night, Gwynplaine receives a letter, um, saying like, "Hey, it's the sexy lady who didn't laugh. Come meet me at night." Mm. And Gwynplaine's like, "Fuck yeah!" Because if a woman who can see my ugliness can love me then maybe I can deserve to marry Dia.
1: That's some definite logic you have there, Gwynplaine.
0: So he goes to Josiana's rooms. um,
1: Her her boudoir.
0: Her boudoir. And the seduction is interrupted by a letter that Josiana receives from the queen herself. You see, because Josiana had gotten on Queen Anne's bad side, um, and she knew and Anne knew that Gwynplaine has a claim to these estates. She's like, well, perfect. I'm going to make Josiana have to marry Gwynplaine the clown uh, in order to keep her estates. Josiana reads this and starts like crying and is like really upset. Gwynplaine doesn't see what's in the letter. He just thinks it's because he's ugly. So he leaves and is very upset. Um, Basically, this whole interaction confirming his fear that he's just too ugly for anyone to want to be around. Except when he gets back, he sees that Dia has um, found the letter, knows that he's out with another lady because she smelled the perfume or something and was very upset. And finally, when Gwynplaine comes back, she's so relieved. And she's like, I'm so happy you're back. Um, Because like, you know, I love you. And he's like, Yeah, but I'm ugly. And she's like, Well, God made me sightless so I could only see the real Gwynplaine. And he's like, That makes sense. Let's get married. Except th- this is a melodrama. So there's a lot of excepts. Mm-hmm. But wait, the Queen's guards come in to arrest Gwynplaine. And he's taken to prison. Now, Ursus follows and basically believes that Gwynplaine has been killed. It doesn't help that later um, Barkil Fedro uh, later tells Ursus that, yeah, no, he's dead. Except that we see that Gwynplaine is actually being prepped for lordship. Ursus at first is like, well, I can't tell Dia that Gwynplaine is dead. So the, the, the show must go on. We'll pretend that there's still a show and Gwynplaine's still here uh, because Dia is blind and can't tell the difference. Except she can tell the difference. And then, of course, the guards burst in again to say, you guys are getting exiled out of England. Get out. Conveniently, at the same time that Gwynplaine is being introduced to the House of Lords. Now, when Gwynplaine is introduced to the House of Lords, the Queen is like, this is the latest lord. And also, he's going to marry Josiana. And that is what I am decreeing. And ultimately, like everyone keeps laughing at Gwynplaine because his face. Um, And he finally just gets so fed up and he confronts the Lord saying, like, you guys are assholes. I'm not going to follow the Queen's orders. Like they start calling him a clown for disobeying the Queen. And he's like, well, before I was a clown and before I was a Lord, I was a man. God damn it. And he tries to escape. And then we get a fun escape over rooftops chase scene complete with some sword fights. Finally, um, he makes it to the docks to where Ursus and Dia are. Now, we do see that Barco-Fedro has followed in a carriage and is trying to catch up to Gwynplaine. Now, Homo the wolf. I I forget how. He smells on the wind that Barco-Fedro is nearby and swims to shore and rips his fucking throat out.
1: Yeah, he like... Pounces on him and like his jaws just like wrap around Barkilphedro's throat and then like pulls him into the water.
0: Rip to Barkilphedro. Right. We see that Gwynplaine sees where the boat is. He d- jumps into the channel, swims, and they can all be reunited because it's a happy ending. He's on the boat. No one dies from the like passion of seeing that he's there and not dead. Like everything's fine and they sail off away from england and and homo gets back on the boat too he doesn't get left behind the end
1: yeah i mean on the one hand while it's pretty typical for hollywood to give a happy ending when they do like a literary adaptation of a book where everyone dies yeah um i will say that in this case i think it is for the best yeah i understand that like tragic endings were kind of like the trend du jour in like Victor Hugo's era yeah um because they were more romantic but when you're following these characters for two hours to just have them all kind of die at the end really sucks it makes you go like why did I watch this movie in the book you know you read this book so that Victor Hugo could like tell you some political stuff but in in <laughs> in terms of the, the the movie if they all died at the end you'd be like okay then what was the point of all this and furthermore as you kind of said sarah they all die for really stupid reasons right
0: like it's almost like a romeo and juliet kind of ending or well, not even it's like uh that story where like she cuts off her hair to buy him a chain for his like watch and he sells his watch to buy her a comb and it's like if you guys just talk to each other it right. would have been fine except that like you know, it's the kind of
1: thing where how does the book ends? Like he gets on the boat. She
0: dies from like the, like, Oh my God, you're alive.
1: Yeah. Which is is like a stupid, like that's stupid. And I'm sorry, but like any modern audience is just like, not going to buy that. This idea that like the romantics had that people would just keel over dead from like strong emotions, especially if it's like a happy emotion, like For whatever reason, we still kind of have, like, I died of sadness as, like, a thing in stories sometimes, no matter how dumb it is. But, like, I died because I was so happy you were here is really dumb. And then for Gwynplaine to just be like, oh, Dia's dead. I guess I'll kill myself. Like, it's just, okay, were you guys all idiots this whole time? Why (laughs) was I? So I I like the happy ending better.
0: Yeah, um, I I wasn't surprised that... That was a change made in this Hollywood movie. I was a little surprised by the Errol Flynn-esque chase scene at the end because Conrad Vite is like jumping over rooftops and doing his own stunts. Yeah. And I'm like, mm, I don't know how old you are, but I worry about you, Conrad.
1: <laughs> Let's see. He was born in 1903, I thought I said in the context setting. Yeah, let me double check my own context setting.
0: He's 35, Ben. He's 35. Yeah. And they've I'm got not him. even 35 and I can't even imagine jumping off of rooftops.
1: Yeah. They've got him doing his own stunts. Like he's Douglas Fairbanks. And I just think it's kind of funny. Cause it's like, welcome to Hollywood Conrad.
0: <laughs> he's like, fuck this back to Germany. Yeah. Um, I just need to stare at my hands.
1: <laughs> I think what we're seeing here with the like chase action ending is universal learning their lesson from Phantom of the Opera mm. where like at first they filmed the book's ending where christine kisses the phantom and he's overwhelmed by emotion and dies and then lets them go (laughs) then they were like okay that doesn't work so they filmed the second ending which was for the comedy version Mm -hmm. and i don't remember uh what that ending was and then finally they did the third ending which was like a big you know angry mob with torches and pitchforks chasing after the phantom through the streets of paris until he like you know gets mobbed to death and so i think like having gone through that experience they were probably like yeah let's just do the chase mob someone drowns in the river ending from the get-go
0: yeah yeah that that's the other thing too when you know we have the mob chasing them i was like but who who's gonna get barco fedro because he's been like the main villain yeah there's no way he is surviving and so when homo jumped into the water i was like oh yeah
1: <laughs> yeah that the like that the main <laughs> villain gets killed because like the dog goes for him is is wild i
0: guess that's why his name is barkle <laughs> Haha! <laughs> what a laugh
1: um so there's a couple like really silly things about this movie mm. i don't really understand <laughs> What Gwynplaine's act is supposed to be, because it's clear that, like, the novelty of it is like, oh, hey, he can't stop smiling, so we're gonna laugh at that. But, like, the actual performance, they have some clowns who intro the show, Mm -hmm. which is a play written by Ursus, the philosopher. A philosopher, which he says is like Shakespeare, but better. We don't get any, like, dialogue from this play. All we really see is that there's some people in monster costumes going at it and then Uh, fighting. Yes. And then Dia shows up as if she's some sort of like angelic figure. Gwynplaine comes on and he, for the show, he has like clown makeup on over his, his face. And he gets out there and he has clearly some dialogue and people laugh at him and he laughs. And then that's like the end of the show, I guess it's very odd to me
0: i'm sure it's something along the lines of like because um the beasts get turned into gwynplaine and so he Mm. has something like the beasts are inside me or something i'm just putting two and two together I, I, i don't really know anything it's a
1: little strange it
0: is a little strange yes the other thing is it's not that i
1: don't understand the premise of the story
0: it's that he has a mutilated face but still
1: finds love right exactly and I get that he's supposed to be like a monster on the level of Quasimodo or Eric. But the thing is, like, okay, so the makeup effects mm-hmm. for Gwynplaine are real good. Yeah. Because you can you can tell it's not just Conrad Vight having to hold a smile all the time. You can tell that it's a forced smile created by Jack Pierce's makeup, because like his eyes and you know, brow are doing all this emoting. And the the whole thing that makes Gwynplaine disturbing is that like mismatch, right? That he can be like sad or angry or disturbed and he's still grinning, right?
0: Yeah, I think Conrad Vight was the perfect casting for this. Um, because the acting he does with his eyes and his brow and mm. forehead is very similar and reminiscent of the acting we see in 1924's hands of Orlack, Yeah, of just being so like distraught over his hands only this like I don't know this feels like there's a extra layer of depth more than just like are my hands a murder's hands <laughs> but that pain of like they keep laughing at me and I'm so upset about this And it's really interesting when like you see him smiling and he has like tears in his eyes and it does look like he's crying a bit because he's laughing so hard. And then he brings up his hand to cover his mouth and it's like, oh no, he's really upset actually. Yeah. Just like a really well done illusion of that.
1: Yeah. The movie doesn't really go into the like sideshow performers paradox of like, I hate that everyone laughs at me because of my deformity, but also like,
0: what else am I going to do?
1: Right. Like here I am on stage performing in a performance that is, Hey, come laugh at me because of my deformity. It's it's a little weird to me that like this, like that Ursus is the one who like creates this show and puts it on because he's the one who like found them as kids and raised them mm-hmm. because like, so then you know how much this upsets him and you were like, let's make money off it. <laughs> <laughs> um That's a little weird to me, but also, everyone, including Gwynplaine, acts as if his eternal smile means that like he's ugly or he's hideous, and like people look at him with like shock,
0: and he's not. That's the downside of casting Conrad fight.
1: he <laughs> right, he's very, very attractive, yeah,
0: but also like
1: he's smiling. Mm-hmm. And there's like an ironic thing there. And Victor Hugo is doing like a weird political commentary thing about like the richest people force smiles on the lower class or whatever. But it's not really like it, the horror of it is the, you know, weird emotional disconnect when he's expressing himself. But it's not exactly like, oh, I could never marry a man so hideous because he only smiles all the time. It's like, most people are actually like really nice to look at when they're smiling. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like a bit of a, a disconnect in the premise That's for me. That's fair.
0: I think they do a pretty good job of making the smile scary. Yeah. Like because it is just so extreme, Um, the way it's showing the teeth. They did a really good job uh, of making it more than just like a smile and yeah. a forced
1: smile yeah for sure like it's pulled back pretty extreme so you're always seeing like his mouth and the the dentures that he wears um give his like top row of teeth this very like like they're like a size too big maybe or something Yeah, like
0: long um and almost like silvery glistening
1: and the the gums are always prominent like yeah. you can always see the top layer of gums above his top layer of teeth yeah um, so yeah it's like a good freaky look i can see why later versions of adaptations of this have tried to go with like the the 2012 adaptation of this went with like a chelsea grin look for Gwynplaine. Okay. um which if you don't know that's where you like cut someone basically from like ear to ear and like intersected with their their mouth so you, basically if they like open their mouth wide it's 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 bad, but it, it, it it's, it's Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, if you don't know what it is. And that's what they did for the 2012 movie. And it does give him like a more grotesque appearance, but it's also like, that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's not a permanent grin. That's scars caused by like cuts that like make it look like he's smiling in a kind of weird, grotesque way. But it's not the same thing as only being able to smile all the time. And it's not the same thing as what's in... The book.
0: Mm -hmm. As we're saying, like, Fight does a really good job here. Mm -hmm. Um, Mary Philbin is fine. Yeah. A little one note, but there's not really any other note for Dia to play.
1: Yeah, she's doing a good job at what she's supposed to do. It's just that mostly that means to stare blankly into space and look pure and innocent.
0: Um, The actor who played Ursus was really good. Mm -hmm. I really liked his performance. You really feel like he has really taken on that fatherly role um he feels very protective of these people while also being like no really get married please
1: <laughs> and also like how distraught he is when things go wrong
0: yeah so i really liked his performance and then i think the other person to mention here is Baklanova lenova is josiana yeah so <laughs> she is having so much fun uh borderline eating scenery I think
1: what you can say about everyone in the cast of this movie is that they understood the assignment, as it were. Baclanova, I don't know if it's Paul Lenny, if it's the costume designer, or if it's Baclanova herself, but, like, Josiana's breasts are, like, threatening to pop out at any moment all the time.
0: A couple of times, um, it's Baklanova herself who, like, pulls her shirt open practically. Yeah. But yes.
1: There's a whole scene where she takes, like, a bath in, like, a big, like, rich person pool. And this, like, servant is, like, looking through the keyhole. And we get, like, a lot of side boob, you know. A lot of butt. Yeah. We're
0: definitely (laughs) pre-code. Yeah,
1: exactly. I don't know how accurate to the period uh, the costumes are in this movie. They look... Okay, uh, especially like the lords' costumes and the queens' costumes and stuff. I don't really know how accurate like what Gwynplaine's wearing normally is or anything. What I do know is that when Gwynplaine goes to Josiana's boudoir and she's wearing a black silk lace nighty, that that is not accurate to the <laughs> 1690s.
0: I I really the way that she wears it, it really feels like Bucklanova showed up to set one on that day and was like. Now let's let's have me wear this. <laughs> I think it's really going to sell it more. <laughs>
1: I brought this from home. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, the sound mm. because we, this is like a partial sound film. It has sound effects and uh, there's points when people are like cheering for Gwynplaine and you hear people yelling like "Yay, Gwynplaine!" and it was just like neat because when you said sound effects, I figured okay, we'll hear people cheering. But to hear it so specific to the movie, I don't know. I thought it was really neat and I enjoyed the experience. The other thing is the sound
1: effects aren't consistent. It's not like if you were watching a modern movie and I just said, oh, yeah, there's the dialogue silent, but everything else is the same. Like sometimes a carriage going by makes noise or sometimes like a door closing makes a noise, but not every time, which really makes it have a very interesting kind of feel mm-hmm. to watch and um,
0: It's very selective in what it wants you to pay attention to
1: and that might be like a technological limitation Mm -hmm. of how many tracks they can put or something but it is noticeable in scenes like where they're cheering for him but you don't hear anything other than the cheering right what did you think um so my favorite piece of music in the score is is Gwynplaine's theme but there's also this like love theme that at two points in the movie becomes the the song when love comes stealing.
0: It is jarring and takes me out of the movie both times. When it first shows up, it's when Vite oh sorry, when Gwynplaine returns and he's like, Yeah, okay, Dia, let's get married. I think it's so jarring because we haven't heard dialogue.
1: Yeah, it's the first human voice you've kind of heard the whole movie.
0: So. Yeah, besides the cheers or whatever um and it's also just like jarring in its style it does not feel like it fits at all
1: yeah it's it's a very um 1920s ballad kind of song warbly yeah very warbly like operatic range but singing a ballad kind mm-hmm. of t- sound to it which is very contemporary to the 1920s. So it's kind of like, you know, if you were watching like a version of The Three Musketeers that just sort of like had like a dubstep track in the middle of it.
0: It's weird. Like um, a
1: Bieber song. <laughs>
0: And then it shows up again at the end. Yeah. And I'm more forgiving of it at the end because it's like, yeah, it's the end. Like, roll well, the end credits scene. You yeah, know? That,
1: that's where you put your your single that you want to get an Oscar for best original song for is yeah. you put it over the credits at the end.
0: Yeah. So it just, I, I feel like that's definitely a, a place where this film has a misstep. But I mean, I understand why it's here.
1: I think that the movie could have used like some tighter editing um, it kind of drags its feet getting going. So, like, because we don't have the flashback structure, we have, you know, Clan Charlie getting tortured, we have Gwynplaine being abandoned, we have Gwynplaine being found by Ursus, we now have him as an adult, we go to the carnival, um, we set up that he has like this show, but then we go to like Dr. Hardquinon, who uh by the way, did you mention what happened to Hardquinon? Oh, um, the blackmail goes terribly. He just gets killed. Yeah, because that's like, don't blackmail people who have their own private guards and shit.
0: To be fair, I can understand him going after the Duchess. Mm. Uh, it's not his fault that it gets intercepted by the Queen.
1: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair.
0: Yeah, not surprised what happens to Hardquinon. I will say um, the way it happens in the movie mm. is it's implied that Hardquinon goes to blackmail the Duchess because he's jealous of Gwynplaine's act being so much more popular than his five-legged cow. Yes,
1: because that's, yeah, the whole reason they reconnect is they're both at the same fair. Yeah, that it's absolutely how it <laughs> plays.
0: <laughs> Which is so funny. It's like, yeah, you got killed over being jealous that no one wanted to see your five-legged cow. Yeah,
1: it's so petty. So anyway, so we have the fair. And it's like, oh, Gwynplaine has a show. He's going to put on a show. And we're like, cool, cool, let's see the show. And they're kind of doing this weird thing where it's clear that they kind of didn't want to really show you the full effect of his smile until he's on stage. But they can't, like, really get away with not showing it to you at all. So you're kind of seeing bits and pieces of it. And we're like, oh, she's going to see the show. And this is where we'll see the show. But instead, like, Moore, meets her there and is like hey what are you doing like sledding it about down here and she's like what are you doing sledding it about down here and they <laughs> leave and go to court and there's a bunch more scenes at court and then she comes back to mm-hmm. the fair for a second time and that's when we see the show so the beginning feels really drawn out it feels like we're halfway through the movie before we see like Gwynplaine's show but then in the second half it's like Yeah. And then we arrested him. We take him to the prison. Next thing you know, he's in a carriage wearing like a full Lord's getup going to the House of Lords. And then he's in the House of Lords. They laugh at him. They do keep Gwynplaine's like speech at the House of Lords, but because it's a silent movie and they're running out of time, they do simplify Hugo's political Point like immensely you know whereas hugo was trying to make some point about how like the nobles are corrupt and they keep the little person down and like force smiles on them so they don't think of their troubles or whatever um this movie just goes for a very simple like
0: humanistic i'm still a man yeah
1: all men are created equal kind of thing um which is a much more like generic kind of message and then it's like we have a chase and a fight scene right and then it like it's over so it feels to me like this maybe could have picked up the pace a bit more near the start.
0: I agree with you that it could have picked up the pace, but I disagree that the beginning needed it. Um, I liked seeing the world from Gwynplaine as a child's view. Um, that's when we get most of the horror Mm -hmm. stuff of Mm -hmm. like skeletons hanging on the wind. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where you really see a lot of the stylistic similarities between this movie and Cat in the Canary. With yeah, there's Poletti. some really
1: striking shots in that opening part. Yeah.
0: But then once he's an adult, um, it feels like it kind of lags. And it especially lags when, basically, when Josiana shows up. Because mm-hmm. the movie's like, okay, we're going to show some TNA. And then drag out her seeing the show so we can have her doing random antics
1: yeah she really should have just gone to the fair the one time
0: yeah but i guess you know you have to set up that you don't really need to set up that the queen's upset with her you already
1: kind of know that you can get that across in other ways yeah so the the middle of it drags
0: and the whole part of like oh well let's still put on the show so dia doesn't know that Gwynplaine's dead yeah was
1: like really uncomfortable oh yeah yeah especially because it's like no one's gonna buy. Well, not only even if she bought this, which she's not going to. You You're can't just gonna keep gonna this, do this up this every forever. Like, <laughs> what the
0: fuck? No, just tell her. Don't treat disabled people like children. Mm-hmm. They are able to comprehend thoughts and grief.
1: Right, yeah, Ursus. Yeah.
0: Like I, I appreciate Ursus as a father figure, but man come
1: on it, it, it kind of to me feels like ursus has his own little like psychic break there oh absolutely, you know, like-
0: <laughs> he could absolutely as he's cheering like being like yeah Gwynplaine, come on stage he absolutely has a break yeah i i think definitely could have used some editing help i kind of want to speak to paul Lenny's style here for sure so like i said at the top of the second half I, I felt a little let down at first and as I started to think on it, I think Paul Lenny uses his visual styling to emphasize the class differences rather than the German expressionism horror stuff and mm. like uh, psychological perspective of things that you see in like Cat and the Canary. There are still like German expressionism elements here, um, but they're not as emphasized. Um, the way that he uses visuals to tell the class story is I think easiest to compare with, um, Josiana's room with Mm. like this big bath, a fucking monkey, um, (laughs) like full of like decadence. Right. Compared to how like the streets are shown or even just the like carriage that, um, Gwynplaine, Dia and Ursus live in where there's like no little trinkets everywhere. Um, it, it's very stark and, and minimal. Sure. Um,
1: the streets have a very, like, expressionist
0: aesthetic to them in a way, especially, like, at night. It's because they're so tall and pointed. Mm-hmm. But th- to me, like, I almost don't even read that as German expressionism anymore because you see that in, like, Frankenstein, for example. Mm. To be fair, Frankenstein takes a lot of German expressionism. But it's not as, like trademark german expressionism as you see in caligari where like yes they're tall and spindly but they're also curved and you know the tim burton look to everything
1: well the the guy who did the set designs for this went on to do frankenstein right oh okay and like all the later universal horror movies yeah and so i think what you can see here is if you want to see like the evolution of that visual style from caligari to frankenstein you can kind of go like caligari hands of orlac this Frankenstein and you can see that visual evolution
0: absolutely there are some neat shots and compositions um some neat movements um but nothing that's like oh I've never seen this before it's just like oh yeah this is neat I'm glad Lenny got a chance to do this
1: yeah he has some cool stuff that that shows throughout that he's still thinking of like his camera as a moving camera and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And he's paying attention to the visuals more than maybe like an American director of the same period. I really think that this is overall very good for what it is, mm-hmm. which is a period melodrama.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, underline melodrama several times because the amount of times that in the plot synopsis, I'm like, except, right, but then... Yes, melodrama because of that structure, but also um, the way that each character is playing a little bit of that trope: um, good girl, bad girl, um, misunderstood hero mm-hmm. or protagonist, whatever.
1: Yeah, it's, dastardly
0: villain. Right.
1: It's definitely not horror. Yes. Yeah, and and the idea that like Gwynplaine is a horror character is. Facetious, Mm -hmm. I say.
0: And I like that the horrific visuals that we get at the beginning um, with seeing Clen Charlie pushed into the Iron Maiden, the skeletons hanging on the chilly wind. Um, I really like that because especially with the skeletons, we're currently seeing the world from the point of view of a like traumatized child. Mm -hmm. So, of course, it looks horrific. But then as he grows up, he has a loving family. Like, then we're into the romantic melodrama.
1: Right. Because exactly. he,
0: he's kind of overcome some of that stuff. Yeah,
1: exactly. Definitely a big showcase for Conrad Vite.
0: Absolutely. Um, I keep saying absolutely, but it's like, yep, I agree.
1: Well, this was really fun to watch with you, Sarah. I'm glad that you finally got to see it.
0: Yeah, it's been on my to-watch list for a long time. Thank you, Creatures of the Night, for listening. And thank you, Patrons of the Night, for voting on this film for the horror-adjacent episode this month. If
1: you'd like to join our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month, but patrons at the 5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content. So that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast.
0: We will, of course, have a poll up to decide the next horror-adjacent bonus episode, and patrons at any level can vote on that. The next Scream Scene episode will be out on Wednesday as regularly scheduled.
1: See you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!